Today we conclude our sermons on the book of Zechariah, so please turn in your Bibles to the 14th chapter of Zechariah. You might remember that what I consider to be one of the great high points of Old Testament Christology, we saw when last we were in this book, when we read in chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they took on, look on me on whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn, which was referenced in the hymn we just sang. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And then in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And now we come to chapter 14, and we see the triumph of the king. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we are deeply grateful for thy word, and we remember how Jeremiah the prophet found thy word and did eat the word. And even though that was prophetic symbolism of the truth and love of the prophet for the Word of God and his submission to it, we also would have such submission to the Word of the Lord. And we pray that we genuinely and deeply and sincerely as the people of God would submit utterly to the authority of the Bible. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we would see something of the grandeur and majesty of the sacred scriptures, and as we come to this chapter this morning, that the Holy Spirit will open our minds and hearts, that we may, in some small but deep, real, and significant way, see something of the grandeur of what it means that our Savior will return at the end of time. And even though, Father, we are coming to what is truly one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament, we pray that nonetheless we can walk away from this place today better prepared to serve the Lord for having spent some time in it this morning. And may the message of salvation, full and free, ring out clearly. And may those who are here that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ who will face the judgment without him if they do not trust him, will this morning be granted saving faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and for the Savior's sake we pray them. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We're in chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah. This is the Word of the Lord. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, 
and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at even, even time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance." And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And... 
On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls upon the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice on them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, we have been given a hope, and with that hope, a promised inheritance that no one and nothing can take from us. Despite the trials of life, we will receive the promised eternal inheritance. And behind the victory of God over His and our enemies is His triune being, His divine attributes, His plan of redemption, the accomplishment of Jesus Christ and His cross and resurrection. And the triumph of God over all of His enemies is certain, and our ultimate hope is secure in Him. And that really is what this chapter is all about. This is why it should fill you with joyful expectation as you read the words of this chapter. Now, it is a hard chapter for us because, as is often true, when the prophets look ahead to the end, and certainly Zechariah does this by divine inspiration, he will use time-bound forms to express these future realities. And so he uses familiar things, the the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and so forth, in this highly symbolic language to express this certain future which is to come. Another example that might be given right from this chapter to help you to orient yourself as to how to read this chapter is that it speaks of a future Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there will be no restoration of the feasts in the day that is to come. It's a symbol, it is a theological truth that he is conveying to us, the reality of the triumph of Christ. Or another place, almost at the end of the the chapter, he speaks of of the, the sacrificial meat, and there will be no reinstitution of the sacrifices in that day. Again, using things familiar to them, he points to eternal realities. Now, much of this chapter, I'm sure, we will understand when it happens, when it actually is fulfilled. However, I think that much of the chapter becomes very clear if we keep in mind the principles of interpretation that I have just mentioned. Now, the principle when we come to Scripture of literal where possible is a very important hermeneutical principle, principle of biblical interpretation. But I also would add literal where intended is an extremely important principle of biblical interpretation. For example, in the book of Revelation, when it speaks of the return of Christ and a sword coming out of his mouth, we know that there will be a literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also know, almost intuitively when we read it, that the sword coming out of his mouth represents judgment and conquest. So we have that kind of symbolism in apocalyptic literature, and that is the form of literature that is before us this morning. 
And so we have literature that is intentionally filled with apocalypse and symbol, and the pictures before our eyes teach us such truth as to make this passage that we have read, especially as we come to the end of it, as to make it absolutely breathtaking for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, as we first come to this passage, we see a day to anticipate, a day to anticipate And I'd like to read the first two verses again. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city." We are given here a vivid picture of the enemies of God who gather together against the Lord's people. And it's important to remember that sinners are responsible for their own evil deeds. And here we seem to have a prophetic, apocalyptic picture of the last struggle of the enemies of God to consume and strangle the church of Jesus Christ through their hatred of the truth. But a greater theme is here than even that. Those sinners gather in sinful hatred against the people of God and wish to destroy her, and I say against the church, because Jerusalem is often symbolic of the church, the whole people of God in the New Testament. They gather against the church, but who ultimately gathers them? Well, we are told in verse 2, for I, Jehovah speaking, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. God himself is the one who sovereignly gathers together the opponents of the church of Jesus Christ so that he may sovereignly destroy those who oppose his truth, his son, and his church. And so, people of God, though we read of a day to come in which there will be this final battle, this is not their day. Rather, this is the Lord's day. And we see it in verse 1 when he says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. This is the Lord's day of final battle against his enemies, of which we read in this passage. People who will be lured through their own sin, but fall into God's own trap. And there is trouble ahead, I believe, as we read sacred scripture. There is trouble ahead for the church that will undoubtedly match or probably exceed the pain that the church has faced and the fires of persecution in the past. And the reason that it will happen in large measure is simply because what the world hates is our intolerance, our insistence on Christ as the only Redeemer, the only Savior, the only way. And that's why there's so much push to modify this insistence upon the exclusivity of the gospel and the authority of the Word of God, and even to modify biblical ethics and the church itself. But J. Gresham Machen was certainly correct when he said, a Christianity tolerant of other religions is just no Christianity at all. Now, don't mistake me. We must be gracious. We must be merciful because we have been shown grace and mercy. We must be kind and we must be considerate, but we also must be graciously and mercifully intolerant so that we speak the truth as it is in Jesus and we do not compromise his truth. 
And true Christians are willing to suffer for the faith. And this text shows us that such times come and there will be a culmination of these things at the end, heightened persecution at the end. You know, the other day when I was reading the book of Philippians with Vicki, my wife, I was taken again by a passage that I read there in the first chapter around verse 28. Let me read verses 27 and 28 of Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, that is, when you stand for the truth, when you are not frightened by the the opponents, when you speak the gospel to them, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." It's a wonderful truth, and yet what I'm concerned about is the truth and reality of all of these things gripping our hearts so that we're prepared. Because I really do not think that the church in America is prepared. I fear we are not prepared for this, and we see a caving in all around us, whether it's on biblical authority or biblical ethics or whatever it may be. We see a caving in all around us. And we must understand, especially young people, that there is system against system. There is what God has revealed. And without that truth and reality, life is absurd. And there is the various systems of the world, which is really one system opposing the truth of God. And there must be system against system. And this is the way we are called to live as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, uncompromisingly system against system. And young people, what I'm really calling upon you to think about as you plan for the future and you know that perilous times are coming for the church of Jesus Christ in this world and in this country even, undoubtedly, throughout the whole world, is that you have a consuming passion to be a student of Holy Scripture And that you get within your heart and soul and mind all of those truths and realities that will help you to stand true no matter what comes. Is there some young person here this morning who will say within his heart, her heart, yes, pastor, I from now on am going to have a consuming passion to study the sacred scriptures and I will not turn back. But note the next verses, the stress of the text is on God's deliverance of his people, not the hardship that we will face. And so the second thing we see is Jehovah fights for his people, and this takes in verses 3 through 7. Now, is not the scene dark as we have read it already a couple of times in the second verse? Does not the world seem to overwhelm the people of God? There seems to be a stream of people coming wave after wave to destroy the people of God. Does not the destruction seem inevitable as we read verse 2? But beginning with verse 3, here is God, our protector, in all of his awful majesty. And he has all of this in hand, and it speaks of his day of battle or day of conflict, which is suggested as a reference from uh, the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus in which the Lord says, he will fight for you and you only have to be silent. 
And so God interposes with all of his might, and anthropomorphically it speaks of his, his foot upon the Mount of Olives, and it divides the Mount of Olives in half. And just as the Lord made a way for his people through the Red Sea, so now he makes another way of escape for his people at the end of the age, and he opens the valley toward the Jordan. The valley of Jehoshaphat is extended, and the faithful people of God now have a way of escape, even though it appears as if they are about to be destroyed. And the text takes on this eschatological apocalyptic proportion that calls upon us to use our vivid imagination as we take in the truths and reality of the text. And the very ground trembles and shakes. And we read in verse 5, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah. And so the Lord will come. He says, and all of his holy ones with him, about which you can read in Matthew 25 or 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when Jesus Christ returns with his retinue of angels, angelic beings, and saints. And then interestingly, in the Hebrew text, where we read, then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. In some manuscripts, it reads, will come with thee as if the prophet is given the ability to actually see this event in his mind's eye as he proclaims this truth and reality. A turn to the second person as the prophet is just enraptured with prophetic sight of the return of Jesus Christ, which should fill your heart and mine as well. And so the prophet's telescope is full out, and he is enabled to see in prophetic vision the majestic return of Jesus Christ with his holy inhabitants of heaven and whatever apocalyptic language is used here. His coming will be a real event and be more glorious than we can conceive and more glorious than even the symbols used in this chapter can convey. What a day it will be when he comes again. And so we learn this. One of the old writers put it this way. When the church's greatest need shall come, then shall come God's greatest deliverance so that we need not fear. Isn't this what we read in that grand psalm, the 46th? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. These events should not fill us with fear, but ultimately should fill our minds and hearts with the truth that God delivers His people. Always He is faithful to deliver His people, and that is true in your life, believer, as well as at the end of the age for the people of God. And represented here in verses 6 and 7, even though I find these verses very difficult, is the time of greatest darkness that the Lord sends forth the light. And so in Revelation 21 and verse 23, 
we read, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And of course, then, when he returns with his retinue of angels and holy ones, of course, then, we will see Jehovah's universal reign. That's the third thing you see. Taking in verses 8 through 11, Jehovah's universal reign. And expressing the divine blessing is the symbol that is given here of living or running waters. As you would read of, of in Ezekiel chapter 47 of the river flowing forth from the temple. One flowing to the Mediterranean, the other flowing to the Dead Sea. And these flowing waters are unaffected by the drought of summer or the freezing cold of winter. These refreshing waters flow perpetually. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, Psalm 46. The point here is that Eden is restored, do you see? Eden was watered by rivers. And here we have a restoration and more and beyond. The kingly reign of Christ is stressed in verse 9 when we have almost a capstone verse that reads, and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one and his name one. And let me tell you, on that day, there will be no coexistence. There will be no political intrigues. All of that will be over. The sinful dictators and the world manipulators, gone. All will be united under the one true and living God. And so for you Tolkien readers, this really is the return of the king. This is the return of the king. Glory to God, this is the return of the king. Spurgeon said somewhere, I'm kind of paraphrasing the idea, but he said somewhere, the day of Christ's return is the day for which all other days were made. Every day in history was made for that day. Every day in your life is made for that day. And therefore, we must learn to live it for that day, people of God. And then in verse 10, the mountain regions around Jerusalem are leveled the destruction is, 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 that is mentioned in verse 2 will be no more. The, the boundaries that were known by Zechariah in his time that he references here, the gate of Benjamin and so forth, all traces of trouble removed. The land around becomes a plain. Arabah, or El Gore, the largest plain in Judea, is the geographical reference that he uses here. And Jerusalem is exalted high which is the imagery of Micah. It is the imagery of Isaiah. As we read in chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the idea here is that all that has opposed is leveled. All that is of God is raised. Jerusalem is raised. The mountain to which the nations flow is raised 
and raised high. And never again the trials of the past. So in verse 11, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. All of God's people and all of his new creation, all that pertains to the covenant of grace, will be in peace and security. How does that strike you, believer? Do you still struggle internally in your heart with a sense that you're not secure, that things are not safe, that you live in an unsafe world? All will be secure for the people of God, he promises his children. So in Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no light, no, no need of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Is this not beautiful? And it's true. It's what God promises. Sometimes in straightforward speech, sometimes in high apocalyptic language, but it's true. It's reality. But then from this beautiful sight, he turns to the judgment on God's enemies with images as dread as the former ones have been blessed. And so we see thirdly, fourthly, God's enemies punished. Taking in verses 12 to 19. And if the promises of God in this passage are put forward in ways that push the limits and exceed the imagination, then I say tremblingly, the punishment of God's enemies do the same in the other direction. But we must remember that the punishment of God's enemies is part of the end, just as is the fulfillment of the promises for God's people. Now, chronologically, verses 12 through 19 follow upon verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And when we come to verse 12, the punishment of God's enemies is an image that's not pleasant. It's of eyes rotting in sockets and tongues rotting in the mouth. And it's of plague and it's an image of corruption. As one of the old writers wrote, the soul of the sinner in its future consciousness of sin shall feel its loathsome corruption as vividly as now it would feel the slow putrefaction of the body that rotted piecemeal in the grave. The famous Old Testament teacher Kyle, one of the few evangelical Old Testament professors from the late 19th century in Germany, says to strengthen the threat, there is added the rotting of the eyes which spied out the nakedness of the city of God and of the tongue which blasphemed God and his people. To express the idea of utter destruction, all the different kinds of plagues and strokes by which nations can be destroyed or grouped together. 
And the image here to me that is most overwhelming is hatred. For we see it in verse 13. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so they, that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. You can read of how this happened in an army in Second Chronicles 20. It's divine panic. And what happens is they fight against one another and hate one another and destroy one another. It really is a portrait of hell. Where, where do we get the, this idea that the eternal punishment of the wicked is going to be just kind of easy? They, they won't have the presence of Christ, of course, and any blessing on them, but it's just going to be an easy kind of place. No. I've read that in people that should know better. In verses 14 and 15, the NIV probably translates this verse better. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem, describing the unity of God's people with God in his judgments. And then in verse 16, the assertion of the Lord's total victory over his and the church's enemies such that all of the nations that survive come up to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's a symbol. It's a symbol of something greater. Ordinances such as the feasts were temporary. They will not be reinstituted. This would deny the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ and what he came to do. It really would be to deny the whole book of Hebrews. But remembering what the feast was all about puts this in perspective. The Feast of Tabernacle was a joyous feast, celebrated deliverance from Egyptian bondage by means of the Exodus. It was a memorial of the wilderness wandering that God would bring to an end. It represented the joy of the ingathered harvest. It represented, as one old writer says, it therefore clustered around it the memories of the past and the blessings of the present. And so the wandering, what he's saying here is the wandering is now over. This hard sojourn that we have through this world of woe with all of its temptation and sin and all of its opposition to the truth, the day is coming in which it will be over. It's a time of rain. It's a time of joy. And in verses 17 to 19, the prophet makes use of other Old Testament references from Deuteronomy 28 about the, the curse of withholding the rain and the days of Elijah when no rain fell for three years. And, and in verse 18, the plagues that came upon Egypt. In verse 19, all the nations punished. You see the point, don't you? It is, said T.B. Moore, Therefore, only a figurative declaration of the fact that unbelief and being ashamed of Christ are the damning sins of the world. Now, this portion of the text that speaks of rotting eyes and tongues and... Again, this is a symbol of something far, far greater. This calls for evangelism. And it calls for evangelism now, right now, in this service of worship. The clear division of humanity that we find here, though it's symbolism, those who know Christ and those who do not. And we read in verse 12, all the peoples 
and verse 13, each man, and verse 14, the wealth of all the surrounding nations. So that we're learning here that whether it's nations, whether it's people groups, whether it is the individual, all will be accountable to the judge of all on the last day. And you know that's true. Eternity is written on your hearts. Everyone who opposes God, the time will come when we will face that judgment. And there is only one way to stand in that judgment, and that is clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, just as we saw in the priest with the filthy clothes that were removed earlier in the book. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not by any work that you do, not by any merit of your own, but simply by trusting and relying upon Christ alone for your salvation. I call upon you to trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Because the time will come in which there will be no evangelism. It all will be done. It will all be over. There will be no evangelism when Jesus returns. It's done. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. This time in which we live is the time of proclamation of the gospel message. But I told you that this chapter is breathtaking. It's breathtaking in the way in which it symbolizes the glory that awaits us, that speaks of the return of the Savior with His retinue of angels and holy ones. It's breathtaking in the way in which it describes the punishment of the wicked. They're just due for their sins. And the only way in which we we can know ourselves to be delivered from that is by trusting the one who was punished in the place of sinners on the cross and who rose from the dead. But it's also breathtaking for an ultimate reason, final point, the ultimate reason. Fifth point, all is holy. All is holy. All is holy when Jesus comes again for his people. And I'm reading verses 20 and 21. Look at it, will you? And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. (laughs) After the Lord Jesus comes in the eternal state, even the most insignificant things would be holy. Even the bells on the horses will have inscribed on them the very inscription that was on the turban of the high priest in the Old Testament, holy to the Lord. And the vessels of the temple for boiling and receiving ashes, just basic instruments of service, all are holy. And in verse 21, literally it says, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in God's house. That's the literal, that's what you find in the Hebrew text. 
which was a term of opprobrium applied to dishonest merchants in the day of Zechariah. I mean, no dishonesty, no false religion, none of that. Not in that day. And as one of the old divines said, all shall be happy because all shall be holy. Sorrow shall cease because sin shall cease. You know, when you came to know the Lord and you felt and knew within your heart you were clean, that your sins had been forgiven, you know, that was the beginning of what you will experience here, unallowed, complete holiness before the Lord justified by grace through faith. Right now, the sanctifying process has begun, but in that day, imagine, no more sin, no temptation, none of that. You know, I was thinking the other day about J. Gresham Mason, a great man of God, should be a household name in our households, and how when Mason lay dying, he wrote that telegram to Professor John Murray, thank God for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. But also a minister came to visit him as he was dying with pneumonia, and he said, Sam, he said, I've seen a vision of heaven, and Sam, it's glorious, glorious. And I was thinking about that. Now, did Professor Machen see heaven with a, a, a vision? I sometimes think as we are passing from this world to the next, perhaps the Lord is gracious to open the veil. But whether he did or didn't, whether it's because of all the truths that filled his mind and maybe in his delirium he was thinking upon those truths, nonetheless, what a glorious thing as you're lying upon your deathbed to think upon these truths and realities. Because these are eschatological and promises and apocalyptic imagery that will exceed our very best and most vivid imaginations. And I want you to remember that Zechariah means God remembers. The name Zechariah means God remembers. He's not going to forget you who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And Jonathan Edwards says, the beginnings of future things are in this world. Are you hearing this? Though being dead, yet he yet speaketh. Edward says, the beginnings of future things are in this world. The seed must be sown here. The foundation must be laid in this world. If it is not begun here, it never will be begun. The light must dawn in this world, or the sun will never rise in the next May it begin now in your heart and in your soul. And if all in that day be holy, then let us as Christians long to express holiness of life from our hearts. Holy in my private time, O God, control my thoughts and actions privately. Holy in my family, holy in my trade or my calling, holy in my recreation, and how the world needs to see faithful, consistent Christians who, though not yet perfect, are moving toward perfection. Well, people of God, that is how I think we should read and apply the 14th chapter of Zechariah.
T.V. Moore was a Presbyterian minister who specialized in the Oriental languages and wrote some fine things on the minor prophets. And when some of those things were published, the editors added a comment at the end of his writings. I want to leave this with you. May these chapters in Zechariah that we've been looking at, may these chapters be used to show us more of the present darkness of our minds, the smallness of our understandings, the brevity of time, and the uncertainty of all earthly prospects that we, like the Old Testament saints, may be led to desire a better country that is an heavenly one. Amen and amen.